Hello everyone. <laughs> Hello everyone. Hi Roger. Hi, uh, hi Yanis, Roger, Brian and, and Ken. Um, and again, hello everyone to uh, know who's uh, who's watching tonight. Um, it's Let's Talk It Over. Once again, it's our sixth show already. Um, before we start, we, we, we are going to talk football and, and politics. But uh, I wanted to briefly highlight uh, something that's happening in, uh, in Brussels right now. Um, Ken, Brian, Yanis and Roger, you've all signed a, a letter that was published in various languages today to pressure on the Belgian government about a hunger strike that more than 400 uh, undocumented workers have started in Brussels on May 23rd. So it's now been uh, pretty much two months. Um, the, the, the health is deteriorating very quickly. Uh, and uh, it looks like despite the pressure by organizations, by you know, civil society and the letter that was published today, um, the government sort of, you know, remained on its, on its position uh, about not negotiating and not doing anything much about it. So I will post a few links um, in the comments, but, um, you know, it shows that, you know, the state of Europe right now and the state of where we're at as sort of a human civilization has a lot to be desired with and a lot to be done with. Um, and briefly, again, we're, not, we're talking about undocumented workers, so people that have lived in Belgium for 5, 10, 20, 50 years that are working, uh, actually building the European Union, that are working, working building the, the metro stations, and that still have no papers. So that's, that's a, a crucial issue that I wanted to briefly highlight now. Saying so, uh, we're now going to talk about football and politics. So Euro 2020, uh, 2021 just ended, um, and um, it's us tonight. Uh, yes, five white men uh, who are going to talk about football. Um, and I wanted to briefly say something about Eduardo Galeano, the uh, great Uruguayan writer who apparently during the World Cup, so every four years, and that, that's a story. I'm not sure if it's entirely true, but apparently it, it could be. Hung a sign to his door that said, closed for football. So for a month, he just didn't leave his house and then emerge again from his house. Um, I want you to, to ask the, the, the four of you, did you didn't emerge for about, that was about a month, a month for Euro 2020? Ken? Um, no, I certainly emerged. I, I, I couldn't, uh, I didn't have the time to watch all the games. Um, and uh, I, I think there's, for, for me, the, the, you, you reach saturation points quite quickly if, if you don't have a, if you don't have a stake in who's going to win. Um, but you had a stake, right? But uh, I guess I probably yeah, I guess I saw about a, a, a third of the games um, um, all the way through, and I glimpsed uh, I glimpsed the others, um, and uh, it, it's it was fascinating. Um, but I, I think w w watching a small television does have its uh, limitations after time. I think we should all club together and buy Ken a big telly so he can watch <laughs> football 
like the rest of us do. Can you get um, one for me as well? And I'm, <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that um, he entirely ignored Frank's last question. Well, and it was so long ago now, I can't remember what it was, but it was... Um, that's so long ago. <laughs> he, did, he did say, he did say, did he not, that um, he didn't watch most of the games, you know. Neither did I, I have to say, because... Yeah. Frankly, I don't care. I care about the mighty Arsenal. I care about club football a lot. I did watch the England games. Um, but I feel like I, I find it very difficult to identify with the, uh, the national support. I really do. And, and they, they, I thought it was fascinating that, um, and I, I've only read this because I wouldn't have known just watching it on the telly, but that the, some of the um, Italian supporters, I'm told, booed the English players when they took a knee before the final. That is what I find really interesting about Eurotonity. Frankly, you know, when Saka missed that final penalty, I thought, oh, poor lad. And, and I did for a second or two think, why did he bring on Rashford and Sancho? You know, they hadn't kicked a ball. They were on there. They're, they're about 12 years old, these boys. And what a terrible burden to put on them. They, they go out there and, you know, obviously, obviously, the Italian goalie, there should be rules against people being that fucking tall in football. <laughs> I, view. I mean, you know, he only had to stick his bloody arms out to save a penalty, didn't he? In fact, the one that he missed at some... Oh, no, I'm thinking of a different game. It doesn't matter. I should stop rabbiting, except that I thought it was fascinating, the glimpse into the inherent primal disdain that is rife through all of our societies and that comes out so deeply and desperately in soccer. You know, you could be, you could sense a lot of the foreign team. I thought in the Ukraine game as well, it's palpable how racist. I mean, we are too, the English are. Trust me, I'm English, I know. And, and oh, Ken's upside down, but he's English too. And Brian, we know how racist we are. And we are very, 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 very racist. In, in you know, I'll stop now. So I know just a little bit more, just a little bit longer. But the Italians booing, when... Um, we did a Pink Floyd exhibition called Their Mortal Remains. And when we w put it on in Milan, for no good reason, it was actually because Michael Cole wanted to make a few quid more out of it. And it was a terrible thing to do because it was a shoddy facsimile of the great job that had been done um, in Exhibition Road at the V&A. They, they put on a Pink Floyd exhibition that was fantastic. Anyway, it doesn't matter how bad it was in Italy. I went to the opening with the drummer. Can't remember his name now, but... Um, and we did a press conference. Brian, you'd be nice. And we did a press conference there. And during the press conference, I said, I can't be bothered to talk about all this bollocks. You know, I don't care about this exhibition. Well, this is what I do care about. We're all human beings and blah, 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 blah. And there was about 400 Italian journalists in the room. And I explained to them that they were all African. And it was fabulous to watch their faces. You know, you tell a fucking Af um, or an, an Italian bloke 
or woman, I think, probably. Maybe the women are better, I don't know, but they're, they're African and they want to tear your fucking heart out, you know, and eat it with spaghetti or whatever, however they would do it. It would be delicious, <laughs> I have no doubt, you know. Maybe particularly during truffle season, like in late autumn, if you're going to eat my, tear my heart out and eat it, chaps, Alba, that is, that would be my preferred uh, sacrificial altar. And now I will stop. <laughs> Just Brian, <laughs> Brian did, you, did you watch any game? I mean, you English, but you have Belgian as well? Did you Belgian, yeah, so. for, for any teams or? You never told me that. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody well, hell. Lucky I didn't say I'm half Italian. Well, <laughs> I've always thought that Frank was half bloody Belgium. It turns out that he's asterisk the bloody Gaul personified. Seeing up there. <laughs> he's French. Anyway, right. isn't it interesting? Yeah, but, but I support Arsenal. That's true. All is true. So I, I, um, I don't like Ken. I don't have a proper television. I don't have a television, really. And so I didn't watch many of the games. And I... I don't have a television, not for ideological reasons, but because I would be a television addict if I did have one. I would watch any old shit that they served up, you know. So, which is what I do when I stay in hotels. I just watch television all the time. Um, but I did. I did watch. Um, I watched two matches. I watched the Belgium match, and oh no, I watched three and the Denmark match and the uh, final, but I only watched half of the final because I had to go to a pub um, nearby to watch it. Um, and the, you were quite right, Roger, about the racism of the English fans. They were absolutely awful. It was a terrible experience being in that pub. And Oh, wow. But, but what, what is worse about it is it, actually the racism wasn't so bad. It's this sort of arrogance that every fat middle-aged football fan thinks that he would know how to play this match better mm. and they're all screaming at the screen and saying pass to the fucking god you fucking stupid cunt you know <laughs> that's all you hear through the whole game is that a particularly english thing to think that you somehow have god's gift of knowing how to play <laughs> even though you're 50 years old and twice as heavy as you ought to be yeah you know this this the sort of english arrogance of not recognizing that those people out on the field have some real expertise yeah and muscles and muscles <laughs> and coordination and incredible skill yeah the rest of us uh, wouldn't uh, dream about I have to say, I, I don't recognise this entirely, Brian. Um, amongst the people I know, I, I mean, I follow a, a, a small non-league club, and uh, people are very respectful there and very friendly, and it's not racist. And I think Good. it's... Um, I think, I mean, the, the, yes, there will be a small number of idiots, but um, football does seem to attract the, the noisy ones. But by and large, um, I mean, I've found that the people who I either watch the game with or... Um, or talk to, don't, I mean, a point large, fairly thoughtful, fairly certainly respectful of, of the England manager, um, and very loyal to the players. But it, it, there's, there's a noisy bunch. But anyway, I, I should step back to it, thank Yannick's unspoken. 
Yeah, but you made Finding Eric or whatever. You know, and you come from up north. You don't live in the fucking smoke where he where he lives and I've lived. I mean, we are they are people in the south of England are a bit different. My granny was from the north of it. My granny is from Teesside, you know. And I I I was writing about her the other day because I've been writing my memoir and and both my grandmothers, my father's mother was from County Durham. And and my mother's mother was from Teesside, and and so I have I have some experience of the difference that exists between the people from the north of England and the people. I don't know if Greece is the same, Yanis, as if there are geographical differences between Athenians and Saloniki people, Spartans. Well, it is in England. Wouldn't you agree, Brian? A bit. I know you're better. Yeah. But yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I only half count, but you are right. I think, I yeah. think there's quite a difference, and it's a difference but, of warmth and welcomingness of of how much you want to to include other people in your circle. I think the South is, tends to be a little bit more exclusive. Yeah, but but, but maybe enough of uh, English imperialism. We should let. Yanis speak, you know, let, let, let the Greek speak. You've, you've invented, invented sports, so, you know, you should know about football. Yeah, we invented sports, yeah, we invented everything. I invented sports! <laughs> but not football, we didn't invent football. It was brought over by the British Army. Like, um, a lot yeah, of other breaks again. I have some good stuff. No, look, I, I haven't watched a single match since Eric Cantona um, hanged up his shoes. Because I was a great Cantona fan, and I will, I watched football up until then, and then I haven't watched. It's just, just like Formula One. The day Ayrton Senna died, I stopped watching Formula One. So, mm. but, but for this Euro 20, I did something that connected me to my childhood, and that will be my entry point to our conversation tonight. Um, I listened to Radio Five. I, I I listened to the to the radio to the radio commentary for the, for the final. And that reminded me, because you know, when I was growing up in Greece, there was no television. It's not that we didn't have a television in our house like Ken. There was no television in the country. Uh, television arrived in Greece, even black and white in 1969, 1970. Really? So I have memories of you know, wow. growing up without television. And I remember listening to football commentary on the radio, which was fantastic. The best pictures come from radio anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So I tried to live that. So I, I listened to the penalty shootout on Radio yeah. 5. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot more interesting than watching it on the screen. And that reminded me of that period in Greece, because when I was growing up, I was growing up in the fascist dictatorship. And I think that the, the, the one thing I want to bring to the conversation is the paradox that is football. And I'll bring it out with a story. It's 1971, around May, April, May, something like that. Uh, and a Greek team, Panathinaikos, for the first time and the last time, makes it to the final of the Champions League, which was called the European Champions Cup or something back then. And there was a, the semi-final was, was in Athens against Red Star Bel Belgrade. And I remember because I was watching that, 4-1, we won, the Greek side, and I was watching that with my mother. Uh, and we were cheering. At the same time, a stone's throw, when I say stone's throw, I mean 300 yards, from the football station, sta uh, stadium, uh, there was the torture chamber of the secret police, the military police to be precise. 
a son. Uh, one of the people being tortured there was my mother's brother. We knew all that. We knew that inside the stadium there were the representatives, you know, the colonels of the, 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 of, of the fascist dictatorship cheering the team on. You know, like every good fascist dictatorship, dictator, they loved the fact that the Greek team was doing well. But this is the paradox. You have leftists. You, I mean, it's, football is the, is the only game that brings together. It's a bit like Greek Easter or Catholic Easter. It's the only thing that can bring fascists and their victims together under the same roof. The, and and that, that's why it's important, you know, not to, um, you know, to paint football, as, you know, in black and, and, and white terms. Uh, because, you know, the main thing, and I think this is a, something we are trying to do in this program, chat, whatever we call it, let's talk it over, you know, highlight the importance of solidarity, whether it's with Palestinians, whether it's with the working class, whether it's internationally solidarity. And, you know, we live in societies. You mentioned, Roger, you mentioned the North, the South. You know, I mentioned Greece. Uh, but, you know, every single society, whether it's this side, um, you know, um, Devon, Greece or Belgium, you know, we live in societies where we have a lack of solidarity. I mean, men and women are deprived of solidarity in their lives. And football, you know, is the last button of solidarity. It produces it in noodles, sometimes in, you know, in, in a frenzied manner. Uh, and th that's the, and it's also very beautiful. It's a very beautiful game. Say, and pop music. And religion. And uh, religion too, but religion is fading. And football is not fading. Good. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing that the religion is fading. I mean, uh, I think but but you know you would never you know have one million people in the same space. Um, unless, of course, it's what, what the, you know, Poland with a Pope visiting. But, you know, I, I think the religion is, is, does not have the capacity to do that, which football can. And we saw that in the Euro. And pop music, to a lesser extent, I think, Brian, today, because it's fragmenting with the Internet and Spotify and so on. You know, people are listening to completely different kinds of music. This sense of togetherness that you used to have in the big gigs and so on, I don't feel it anymore. I feel that, you know... Uh, yeah. Do you, did you? Well, something happened a couple of years ago that I think was really, really remarkable. It was that song Jerusalem? Do you do you know that song? No. Nobody of our generation knows that song. Oh yes, 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 I do. Everybody I do. Forty knows that song. I do. I do. My and, my daughter told me about it. Yeah. Oh, it's it was an amazing thing, and suddenly all over the world, people are dance doing the dance to that song. You know, policemen yeah. or soldiers or nurses or dentists um, it's the most extraordinary phenomenon i think and and that suddenly gave me hope for a new future for popular culture um what is it can you explain it because i don't know what you're talking it's, about it's a beautiful song okay. uh, it's a, a song from sing it come on sing it <laughs> if frank was doing his job he would pull it up if, if that was aaron Marte. He would have Ben Orton <laughs> beside him, and it would be suddenly it would be there on your screen because you'd be going like that, and blah blah blah, and here it is, right, Frank? I'm not, I'm not aromatic. I mate. know you're not. It's all right. <laughs> Don't worry, son. Um, I just I just listen to you guys. It's such a beautiful song, and What's the singer is a. Uh, I think she's South African. It's yeah. she has a very beautiful sort of husky, low female voice. Um, I would say she's even in, in the baritone register as a singer. Um, and she, this song is a beautiful song, and everybody in the world 
loved it, it seems. And so suddenly you got you saw people all over the world getting together in groups to do this song. And there are thousands of versions of it on YouTube. It's really worth seeing. Well, I'm going to pull it up. You will allow me to say, sorry, Roger, you will allow me to contest what what you're saying, Brian, because pop music has this capacity. But it doesn't, I mean, you mentioned the pub before, where the 50-year-old guy with a big tummy and, you know, uh, sweating and saying, think that he could do it better than the footballers. You see, this is the strength of football. Pop music doesn't have that. You know, everybody watching football, they think, they imagine that it could be them. Because unlike basketball, you know, they're too, too, too big. They're all like the Italian goalie, right, yeah. in basketball. You cannot imagine that you could be playing basketball because you're not, you know, two meters 20. But, you know, all these guys that are watching in the pub, and, you know, most people can actually identify with them because, you know, they're all, they're all their egos, people they could have been. You know, when they, they, they see the, okay, a bit leaner, a bit fitter, they think that, you know, with about three months of training, I could be like them. And that is, that's a great strength. And if you throw the, the beauty, the art, the solidarity, the, you know, the tragedy, I mean, think of the, of the penalty shooter. That's a, an ancient tragedy in the end, mm-hmm. without catharsis, but nevertheless, you know, it's there. All these things create this sense and also the fact that the working class for the very first moment uh, for a very for, it's a very rare moment the working class feels that their culture is vindicated yes that suddenly you know even boris johnson and prince charles recognize their culture to be superior than than the cricket club culture that like the union yeah. culture, right well, i want to hear and, Ken. Yeah, yeah yeah but but i think yeah. I, I think what you say Yanis, is very true I mean, it's, I mean, it was uh, the, the remark of Camus, you know, Albert Camus saying that all I know of morality uh, uh, and obligation I learned from football uh, because it does bring, it brings all those elements together. Um, mm-hmm. And the, we're talking about Eric Cantona. I mean, his, when, when we asked him, what's your favourite moment from your whole career, expecting a glorious goal, what he said was it was a pass. It was a pass. And in other words, and when, when we when we first met Eric, we thought, well, you know, he's a big star. You know, he's um, he he will he has the the aura of a big star. Not at all. He was a team player, and he and he was instinctively a team player. And so I think the the, the problem is when when the the press and the the hype about football becomes about that the the, the racist element and the racist abuse that followed but actually i think you're right when you say it's a beautiful game and and there are many beautiful aspects to it um and it is to do with the solidarity of the team is to do with solidarity of the supporters with the team um and it's uh, it's a celebration and i think that's much stronger than the few idiots who who shout from the terraces yeah but are then yeah. taken up and they mm. become the story but that's not the story you know, the, the, the story is... is it's, it's an important part a, a of the story. Real sense, yes, it, it's, it is an important part, of course. Um, but so is the neo-fascist part, right? The, the British National Party, they also feel immense solidarity. Solidarity is, is a two-edged sword, right? Double-edged sword. Because, you know, the Nazis had immense solidarity with one another. The BNP guys have solidarity. The football hooligans are extremely... They would die for each other. So, you know, we have to, to recognize yeah. that football has all these features. Yeah, yeah sure. But so we need maybe, to... Maybe, it, 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 
sorry. Can I want to say that, something that, quickly to, to I want to, uh, sorry. I think that's where Camus was right in, in that you can learn all aspects through football. I mean, it, it you know, it, it clarifies all those different elements. I need to say something briefly to, to talk to you, Roger, about Aaron Maté and myself and stuff. I'm going to go one step above what Aaron could have done because the thing is, so the singer of Jerusalem is called Nomsebo Zikode. And the funny thing is you mentioned this song, Brian, but two weeks ago, Roger, uh, Ronnie Casrells, our friends, Ro Roger, yeah. contact, contacted me and wanted me to put you and Nomsebo Zikode in touch because she wanted to introduce the song to you and stuff. So I'm waiting actually for a message from her that I'll, I'll send to you. So if Aaron yeah. Mate can do better, just it's ask him. Is that the woman? Who <laughs> She's the woman singing the song, yeah. So you should hear from her in about, you know, whenever she sends me a message. Five seconds. I'm sorry. <laughs> and that's the truth. I've got the email to show, to show, to prove it. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I interrupted uh, Ken a bit, I think. Well, oh, I want to say something about the boo... Uh, sorry, go. No. The booing. Yeah. No. You mentioned the Italian, Italian fans booing England for taking the knee, but English fans also booed yeah. England for taking the knee, right? Yeah. And, and Bukayo Saka said today in a Twitter post, a long Twitter post, because he was racially abused like Rashford and, and, and uh, Sancho, he ended his, his post by saying, love always wins. Hey, Saka, my friend, Bukayo, how fucking cool would that be, brother, if that was true? This is what we are having this conversation down the pub about, is can love win, i.e. these disparate elements that are exposed when we all watch soccer together, there's one, there's the National Front who see it only as a, the group, the Greek concept of sport as an expression of war. And that's what they see. Can we kill the other man or not? That's where it is. Whereas there is a new esprit, and it's an esprit de corps, which is our love for our teammates and extending beyond beyond our love for our teammates, our love for everybody else. And that when the game, and it's only a game, and when it's over, let's go down the pub and have a drink, and Christ, you played well and whatever. And none of this racist fucking bullshit deserves even a sniff around the beautiful game. That's why I was wanting, when Ken was talking about Eric Cantona, I was wondering whether if Eric was in the game now, like Marcus Rashford is, I've no idea what Bukayo Saka's politics are, but at least to a man, all English Premier League players take a knee now before every single game, and they apparently are taking it now not for black lives, but for as an against racism the whole concept that some of us believe ourselves to be superior to others because of what we've been taught because we're european so this and let me add to this roger that i actually like the fact that the, the the racists in the stadium are booing the english players for taking the knee the liberal demand that they keep these feelings to themselves and keep quiet uh, i find it appalling if they are racist, they should boo, and then that gives us an opportunity to boo them, right? And, you know, we need the conflict. 
we need the love and we need the clash between ourselves and the fascists, even on the terraces. All right. If I may, I want to throw a hand grenade in. If Eric was around, and I adore Eric Cantona, if for nothing else, for his really bad trumpet playing in Finding <laughs> Eric. Because Looking for I Eric. Trumpet really badly. So I really I felt an extraordinary bond of brotherhood with Eric Canstell when he was playing the trumpet in that move. Eric, oh my oh my god. If only I was queer. Oh Christ, you're not allowed to say queer. Whatever. Um so but Eric, if Eric was around now, would he join us, for instance, in the football community? to persuade FIFA or UFA that we cannot play against an Israeli national side just the same as we refuse to play rugby and cricket against South African national sides when they were based on a whole racist ethos of this and that and the other and blah, blah, like national and club Israeli sides are now. I know it's a bit of a hand grenade and I don't apologise because we are down the pub. <laughs> Don't apologize. I think that we, if we spoke, if we had a chance to chat with him for 10 minutes, uh, he would. You think so? Uh, what do you Eric, think? actually. Ken, you knew him. You know him. You know the great man. Um, um, I, 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 yeah, I do. But uh, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to speak for him. Um, uh, of course. Not. Eric's his own man. You know, I mean, he's a very principled man, but, but he... He's um, he, he's a very modest man as well, and he doesn't you know he doesn't air his opinions all the time. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't presume to speak for him. He's a very principled guy, though. So I think we can you can imagine right. what he would say. Um, I mean, I want to throw something else in. I mean, there there is a very strong radical tradition in football as well. You know, you think of the um, I mean, a, a number of um, groups of supporters uh, get together, and I mean, there's there's a food bank. Bank um, collective across different clubs, you know, and people like the great Bill Shankly um, uh, had a quote, and I can't remember it now exactly, but it's um, he believes in, um, uh, in in everybody working together, everybody having a share of the rewards. That's how I see football. That's how I see life. You know, it's the reason why I support Liverpool, Bill Shankly. I could yeah, say, come on your heads, and mean it both in terms of football and in terms yes, of public politics. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But but in in all the, I mean, the right wing always, the right wing press always loves to highlight the racism, the right wing attacks, the right wing hooligans. There is a radical socialist element in football, and don't let's underestimate it. There's a there's a whole the whole business. Um, movement towards community ownership of football it was mm. was driven by uh, a political belief in 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 public ownership and common ownership um and the uh, fc united that came out of the uh, manchester united when they were taken over by the glazers uh, and they say glaziers glazers uh, in opposition to them uh, was driven by people who had a, a, a history of socialism you know so so there's there is a very benign, positive, um, community-orientated element mm -hmm. in, amongst football fans, and you know that we, it gets overlooked because the right wing are obsessed by the right press, obsessed by the right wing. But let's not overlook that. 
I mean, one, one very interesting club in that respect is Barcelona, who, who've always been a sort of socialist, a socialistly ethical club and do all sorts of interesting community things within Barcelona. Um, I, I wondered, I asked a friend of mine recently if he knew if there was a book about that club, because I would love to read it. it they have a very highly evolved sort of socialistic principle as far as I can tell. And, and Barcelona is owned by the fan, right? The fans yeah, actually right. own Barcelona yeah, football club. That is completely true. And that's why I always support the Barcelona amongst the Spanish teams. But yeah. remember, this cooperative joined those bastards uh, that were trying to create the Super League. So um, it, it just reminds me of Robert Owen's form of socialism. We create a little socialist oasis here and there, uh, and we don't fight capitalism generally. Uh, this is why I was never an Owenite, and that's why I was a Marxist, because you cannot, uh, in an archipelago, in an ocean of capitalist exploitation, create a little oasis from capital, you know, a cooperative oasis, even if you create it, and very, you know, very soon, Either it becomes like the PSB, remember, the Trustee Savings Bank that became part of Lloyd's, or it becomes like Barcelona. Uh, despite its ownership structure, it joins the Glazers, mm. and the Liverpools, and so on, and the Milans, mm. and uh, into the Super League. Yeah, but don't you think that every time something like that happens, um, it tells people that something like that is possible, and it makes it more easy for the... For instance, in Spain also, you have the biggest cooperative in the world as far as i know mondragon that huge huge cooperative um okay my turn to throw a hand grenade to follow roger do you know what for me the best socialist model in football is nfl american football think about it instead of the cooperative model of barcelona here you have a championship I mean, I never watch it. It's crap. But uh, if you look, if you look at the political economy of it, you have a championship where you have a salary cap in order to introduce equality between teams. So you cannot have the good teams spend overspending the bad teams. And the most socialist principle possible: the best rookie player is obliged by the regulations of the league to join the worst team in order to strengthen it. And that was invented in the United States. This is, you know, central planning. It, it's a, an understanding that the quality of the game depends on restricting the, the market forces yes. and on on forcing on on strengthening the weakest teams by forcing the best players not to have a, a, a private choice. Mm. So you know, why, you, know, you know why that hand grenade? I'm going to leap on it now until it goes good. off. Okay. <laughs> But obviously the reason is so you can screw as much money out of the pockets of working people in every single city and you don't get, like we do in, in England, for instance, you know, the, um, the major cities in soccer have the major teams and they're all owned by foreign owners these days. Nothing is owned by anybody is faintly English anymore, as far as I know. So whatever. But I suspect that the NFL didn't sit around and decide that what they wanted to do was create something that was egalitarian. They no, 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 no. They were just smart entrepreneurs. Everybody interested enough to shell out their money every Saturday. Yeah, but you see... To watch this ineffably boring effing game that they play. But, okay, you and I don't like... Um, Obviously, it's selling, <laughs> to, 
they need but, to... But, but Roger, Roger the, the point here is this. Yeah. Here you have hard-nosed capitalist pigs understanding that in order to have an interesting game, you know, closely um, close, close games, yeah. you need to, to reward and you need to uh, strengthen the weaker side and you need to impose a salary cap on the rich teams. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this is, you know, yeah, but a this is fucking Huxley. This is brave new world. This is handicapping the athletes. It's not. It's oh, not. Like, you know, this is the welfare state. Let's this is the welfare state. What the welfare state does, it taxes the rich and gives it to the poor. That happens within a hugely capitalist NFL. And what is interesting is that the spillover is that these guys make their money there and then take their money and come to England where there is no such quasi-socialist scheme, buy teams, they can then purchase all the good players, you know, whether they are Russian oligarchs or the Glazers, and then they completely dominate the team, and the little teams, like, you know, Wolverhampton Wanderers and so on, stand no chance in hell of ever winning anything. How? I'm sorry about Mowgli, he disagrees. I don't disagree. I think Brian, Brian wanted to talk. I, I just wanted to say that within football itself, there's a rule called the offside rule, which is a little bit like what we're talking about. If you think about it, the offside rule is a completely artificial construction. Um, and it's just to prevent the game becoming stupidly boring, because if you didn't have an offside rule, everyone would just stand at each end of the pitch by the goal and wait till the ball, play, you know. It, it would be a very boring game. So, so I think within football, you already have that tradition of understanding that you have to make certain rules in order to keep the game fascinating. And uh, I, th I think Yanis is right, actually, but maybe that was a kind of intuitive grasp of things by the NFL, that, that they would end up with a very boring game otherwise. They right. ended up with a very Dan. boring game anyway. <laughs> Danny's got his hand up. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I think it... Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, football is much more than the the, the Premiership and the the big clubs. Um, I mean, if you see football in among smaller clubs as as I do, um, you know, lower leagues or non-league, even semi-professional and professionals who earn you know an, an average wage, um, a lot of these problems don't exist. And in fact, the the I mean, clubs have supporters have huge loyalty to to players. Obviously, we all know. So the idea that they might be whisked away, um, you know, goes against the the, the enjoyment of, of of having a relationship with a player. You're right. Um, and I mean, it was interesting. I, we did a, a a little film about a, a non-league club and went in the dressing room, and I expected it to be quite low key, you know, and not not so passionate as um, as you would expect at, at the big clubs. But not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. I mean, it was as intense. Even though these were players who were in, you know, might have been a, a brickie or a building worker or whatever, or a work on the trains during the week, but their passion for it and their dedication and the seriousness with which it was taken um, mm -hmm. was terrific. And and the passion they showed and the, and the relationship with the fans and the meeting them in the bar at the end of the game and there was there'd be an award for player of the game, you know, player of the match and so on. And the the experience is as intense, but in some ways it's stronger because you're closer to the pitch. Yeah. Um, 
you you have a relationship to the to the team. Uh, you follow them year after year after year. I mean, people go from they start as children, they end it up, you know, in the, just before they kick the bucket. So that it's a lifelong commitment, and and that is the glory of football to me. It, it's not mm. it's not the extravaganza of the very rich clubs. It's the vast majority of clubs and the vast majority of supporters, and mm-hmm. the intensity of that experience is, um, is is extraordinary. It's a real gymnasium of emotion because you go from extreme um, success to to disaster, you know, within minutes, um, and it's uh, it's it, it's extraordinary and and quite unique, I think, in in experience. Mm-hmm. Frank sent me this this morning. Ah, uh, yeah, I, w- I wanted to show it actually. Well, go and I, I, show it then. I, I can't show it. Oh, Ken's gone now. Look, Roger, what have you done? Well, no, you were going to show it. I can't. No, no. I, I was. It. It's. I you sent it to you, Brian. It's, it's. It's Roger playing football. Yeah, I know. I saw it, but I can't. I don't know how to show. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh, great. Now, we, now, we can now see we can it now. now so Roger it. is the one doing Maybe the dirty tackle. The dirty I, tackling. I'm very impressed by <laughs> Roger's very, very full thigh muscles. Yeah, I know. I was. <laughs> I, I, thought I, I, was... Said, I said to my missus this morning, that is where our dog gets its thigh muscles from. It's <laughs> <laughs> half pit bull and she's got these amazingly powerful thighs. I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering about those thighs as well. I was like, is it photoshopped? I mean, that's too old to be photoshopped, right? How dare you say I'm too old to be photoshopped? <laughs> you fucking Frenchmen living in Brussels are all the same. Nothing but snide comments about us English guys. <laughs> no, but I was very impressed. What was this game? Was it like you playing football or was it just yeah, a, a, a... It would have been a Pink Floyd 11 of Rhodes. Oh, and, well, okay. I can't remember the other blokes in the band, but whatever. And um, yeah, against... A French team of journalists and ah yeah, so you, know, you lost right? And it was probably uh, you know Guillaume Passon and people <laughs> like that. Uh, actually, Guillaume Passon was a fine left back. He was a bit old at the time. I could yeah. rings round him with my thighs, whatever. But <laughs> Simon de Beauvoir, great centre half, very good in the air. Hey, I want to say something about football and politics, and I want to talk about the NBA, the NFL. The thing is, for the last, since Black Lives Matter arrived, we've seen lots of African Americans at the NBA level, NFL, take a stand, you know, in, in, in terms of politics and stuff. And I was always like, raging about footballers not saying anything uh, you know just saying at the end of the game yeah he passed me the ball i i shot we scored uh, thanks to reebok and adidas and but in the last few years this oh. has completely changed in the last few years i wanted to briefly comment on cantona again cantona is actually part of the hoping foundation you know with carman abulsi and bella freud and he's done a few things on palestine he was actually supposed to join us in barcelona for the russell tribunal in 2010 um, so he's, uh, he's still, um, he's quite politically uh, active and I guess on, on the right side. But what about the recent, in the last few years, we've seen Pogba tweet about Palestine, carry a flag, a Palestinian flag on, on the pitch, right? We've seen the Leicester City football, football, fan, uh, football players doing this as well. And Owen Jones in The Guardian 
today or yesterday, wrote something. He said that instead of a trophy, England's national team have inherited something far more precious, the mantle of the official opposition. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, those young players have been amazing. I, I, I missed that. The mantle of what? The official opposition yeah, in yes, England. Yeah, I mean, he's quite late to that. I mean, people have been talking about uh, Marcus Rashford being the leader of the opposition for some time. And um, I think what people respond to is, is just a, a clarity of... Um, saying these situations are intolerable, um, and uh, and and that that's what um, Marcus Rashford's done. It's it's what others have done, and I think the 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 link between what has developed over the years is the link between. Well, maybe it's always been there, but been but become more highlighted recently. Is the link between the players and the club and the local community, um, mm -hmm. and um, and they they express it, and and they're working class lads, and they. They they've lived it and um, they live in the world, so they see that connection. And uh, no, I, I think I think there's something to be said. It also reflects on the on the absence of a CS opposition um, because Starmer is uh, feeble in the extreme when it comes to the big principles. So to have to have a young lad, you know, express the broad principles very clearly, uh, people respond to it. What was very interesting, I think, was that um, Boris Johnson and Priti Patel had to very quickly backtrack when they realised that the mood of public opinion wasn't on their side at all. Because their, their initial reaction to the taking the knee thing was that it was, you know, awful and... The John Telegraph in Lambasting. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, in fact, they've, they've completely been defeated on that, I think. And that was that was actually the good thing about the... Publis the publicity given to the to the racism because it showed that uh, Patel and Johnson weren't on the same side as everybody else. But let's not get carried away. Yes, football is a hotbed of uh, working class values. Always has been from the very beginning. Um, the, the the New England team uh, is clearly projecting an image that progressives would like Britain to have. Which it doesn't have, but you know, progressives would like to have this image of the diverse, uh, op, you know, the, the team that is you know, society that's taking the knee and making amends for racism and so on. But you know, that's not the reality. That that is that that is a, an aspiration for progressives and uh, and for the working class. But it's not a revolutionary movement football. You know, I, I help people telling me it's the last left wing movement football. It is not, because to the extent that it, you know it it. It's, it's, what it does, it, it, it creates a soothing feeling for progressives and for the working class, which at the same time, uh, you know, blunts any organization to change things. It's a bit like, you know, um, the hope that uh, the British working class had that the, the, the Queen would drop in for a cup of tea. It, it does not create a movement for overthrowing the monarchy and overthrowing the, you know, the established order. So, you know, we, it's a paradox. I, I've been saying from the beginning, it's a paradox. We have the best and the worst. We have fascism and we have extremely radical politics. It is a fantastic opportunity to recover a, a sense of solidarity and working class values, but in, in, on its own, 
it's not a class for itself. It's not a revolutionary movement. Um, but it's we a need class. to do a lot of work. It's a game. It's a game. Yeah. It's, it's a game. game, essentially. And, yeah. and by the way, even from the beginning, it was not egalitarian. or, or It was invented in the British public school system. And, and, and football was played exclusively by public schools for, for I don't know, 50 years or something. The FA didn't actually come into being until 1875 or something. And it was based upon an amalgamation of a collection of different rules from different schools. Right. And so the rules that were uh, extant at rugby, for instance, were different than the rules that were extant at Eton. And the rules, the game that they played that had developed from the war game in Eton became association football. And rugby went off and had this silly game with, with an ovoid ball where you handled it, you know. And so that that's, but that's where it comes from. It comes from what do we do with these boys who are locked up, you know, in their dormitories all night to keep them healthy? Okay. I mean, all sorts of things have strange origins, but once the working class took it over, then the rugby guys had to yeah. invent another game oh, to differentiate themselves from the riffraff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ow, shit. I just found my knee. No, you're right, obviously, about that. What I'm interested in, and which is why... A few weeks ago, I went, I'm going to start a movement to get Israel kicked out of UFA and FIFA or whatever. I'm interested in the idea that somewhere hiding within the masses of the people who love football are enough of those masses to make a difference politically in the world that we also inhabit when we're not watching football, which is a world that is based upon our feeling that people, human beings, homo sapiens, all of them should have basic human rights. And that that is even more important than Millwall, you know. That's all. And so, and that really interests me. Could we find a Marcus Rashford, assuming that Eric Cantona has, you know, written off into the sunset or whatever? And I don't know if he ever got involved in the Russell Tribunal or the things that, you know, we've all been involved in since. I don't know, but is there a Marcus Rashford out there? We know that he likes distributing food to poor people in Manchester, but is he interested in human rights or not? You know, how much does he care about it? How much? Well, it's not enough for him to be interested in human rights. He must Can also make yeah. the connection of apartheid with um, Israel. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I this think, is not a connection that people make automatically, you know. I, I, I missed that. Sorry. I, I think that... Uh, sorry, sorry, Anissa. Um, okay. Ken wanted to come in. Oh, shit. Not yeah, no, all I said, Roger, was that he it's not enough for somebody to be interested in human rights. They also have to make the mental connection between Israel and apartheid. It's not clear to, to most people that there mm -hmm. is an apartheid state in Israel because they've not been informed of it. Because this is why I said that, remember, I said that, that if we had 10 minutes to have a discussion with, with Eric Antona, then uh, we, would, we would turn him. If he needs turning, maybe he doesn't need turning. Let Ken. Yeah, just, I don't think he uh, does. Yeah, Ken. Sorry, my my um, but my, my, but my reception is very bad, and I, I'm I keep I keep losing the pictures and, and not hearing what people are saying. But the the point I wanted to make is, 
I think we're again we're falling into the trap of thinking about the stars and thinking about the big games. Football itself, every club can be can be is an access to working class activity. Um, there's many community activities. Um, I mean, at our club, there is a uh, there's a group, there's a charitable element. I mean, I hate charities, but there's a there's a community element which gives um, is involved in the food banks. It's involved in ah, um... oh, how Roger, you need to buy Ken a proper like Wi-Fi connection, not a TV. <laughs> both, both. <laughs> I but I want to say, sending in that fashion to Ken, he can he can afford a fucking microphone if he wants. But he needs to know how to plug it. <laughs> <laughs> He's back. Uh, there you are. So I've lost you. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, every club, most clubs have this have this connection to working class life. And the players have a presence in the community because they are players. They go to school, and once they're involved in the food bank, then the question is, I mean, if you're political, you can then be part of the discussions and say, now, why do we have poverty? Why do children need food banks? Yes, we're helping them. We're pleased to help. Why are we having to do it? And you're into a political discussion. And football is the, is the hub for this. Because people will will come to football, they enjoy training with the players. It, it's a it's a great leisure activity, very benign. Teachers like it, nutritionists like it because you can talk about that. So there's there's those there's those benign benefits. But if the if there's a political element, then you can key into the political debate, and and then it then it connects, you know. So so I think that our obsession with the stars and the big clubs is is um, we often miss the possibilities in every town wherever there's a club because clubs can connect. Clubs bring people together. Yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, in, in Australia, for instance, the Aborigines, Aboriginal kids uh, get connected and find ways of expressing their political views, their individuality, their uh, aspirations through Aussie rules football. So, you know, it, sport plays that role, uh, team, team sport in particular. Um, and, you know, it's, um, we must not either overestimate the revolutionary value of team sport or underestimated. This is a, this is the hard part to get it right. But but everybody needs practice, you know. So <laughs> I, I think a lot of these things, like, like I th I think dancing and community singing and all that sort of thing, it's all practice in how to be sociable, because the whole emphasis of capitalist society has been to stop us being sociable, actually, or to encourage mm -hmm. encourage our atomization to make atomization. us into exactly. individuals to make us tired to make us what tired yes yes ourselves. so when we've finished our 14 hour day climbing a fucking chimney you know when we're 12 years old we're tired we're not to make us to make us sad bastards that's that's what they are trying to do yeah exactly Timagalos Kilo Echiaki, eh? He wants to practice his Greek now. <laughs> he just admired the size of my dog. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I'm getting worried about these big thighs and admiring the size. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> we need more women on this show. But I mean, we yeah. we we've, we've we've gone to one hour. Yeah, well, oh, Ken's gone Ken. again. Ken. Oh. Ken. 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 Oh, he needs to. You know, I don't give a fuck about the camera. It's his microphone. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I can't hear what he's saying. No, no, I know. Here he comes. Here he comes. Quiet. Upside down. <laughs> we were upside down, Ken. That's why we were like sort of re-entering the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, re-entry. Yeah, like Elon Musk and. <laughs> oh yeah. But I mean, we, we've gone for about we've gone for about an hour now. One thing I want to say about footballers. For me, I'm, I'm not really maybe expecting Marcus Rashford to, to lead a revolution, but they are so they are the idols of millions of people. And you know, uh, you know, when Paul Pogba says like, "Oh, I'm wearing these Nike shoes," like thousands of people actually buy the Nike shoes. So the day Pogba and, and Rashford start to talk about Palestine and about about social issues in England. Potentially, millions of kids will, for the first time, hear about, wow, this is happening. So maybe it's not about them being like Che Guevara, but it's them through the social media and stuff, potentially, you know, lighting a bulb in people's head or young kids' heads. But um, maybe I've been too optimistic. Well, it may be if one of them stood up and said, I am not wearing Puma shoes because Mm. yes says that, Puma are blah, 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 this and that, and they're beyond the pale, and you must boycott all Puma uh, football shirts and and this and that, the other. Well, that that would be something. That is something, and that's big, as you say. But it will take time. I think that was Yanis said, you know, it's about education. And I think, you know, you start by saying, um, you know, food banks are not the norm in England, and it, it sort of creates something that then could potentially lead you to saying Israel is an apartheid state. I think it's just a bit of a, a seed, you know, in people's heads, you know. That's well, what I hope anyway. Thing, Frank, if the only thing that the four or five of us have done here this afternoon is by Yanis point out that people don't know that Israel is an apartheid state, you know, what, how can it be that nobody knows mm. that? Because it, nobody tells them. Yeah, well, and anybody who tells him gets demonized well, and destroyed. That's why we need this pub. <laughs> and many other like this one. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. I, I think we're going to have to stop because Ken's got like something to do in Rome from Bath, right? You've got this big thing with Rome, right? A film festival or something. Yeah, I, I, I just hope it's better reception. I don't keep disappearing into the... <laughs> Yeah. But the Italians, ask, anyway. So yeah, I want to ask Ken a question. Can I please just one question? Yeah, go on. What is that pile of books that yeah, fat on. bloke's carrying be, over your shoulder? Behind your sh- <laughs> over your right shoulder, there's a fat bloke. I, I don't know. Got... <laughs> what are they? <laughs> it's um, I, I I don't know. It's it's a it's an old print uh, of a guy called John Nicholson, and I, I know a John Nicholson, but it's not the same one. Um, and it's um, he's covered a pile of books, so it's just quite friendly, really. Um, it, it has no significance apart from that, Rod. <laughs> well, I'm glad I know now. <laughs> All right. So, Roger, when are you coming to Greece? Brian is performing on the fourth of August. Are you joining us? Is he? 
No, no. Yeah. Of all this stuff. You're the on Athens. Oh. On the foot of the Acropolis. Can I watch it? Is no, it, you've, got to, you've got to come and join us. In it's, in the it's in the amphitheater. Yes, yes, it's in the amphitheater, yeah. What's he going to do? Is he going to play his banjo? What are you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> and come and brother. find out. Oh, yeah, well, you have to come. He's a very modest man, so I'm going to, uh, to, to, I'm going to advertise it. 4th August, Athens, Herodion, by the Acropolis Auditorium. Yes. Brian Eno and Roger Eno, right? Sorry, Lots of new music, never before. Before, yeah, that could be a warning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, I've got to. We're go. gonna have. To, we're gonna have to stop it anyway because it's uh, one hour and five minutes. Okay. I mean, we, it's okay. been very, very instructive. We've learned that Roger's thigh are not photoshopped. Um, that you know, Roger and Yanis hate the NFL, right? And yeah, uh, are very impressed <laughs> by the political economy of it. Yes, and I so not waste my hatred on something as insignificant <laughs> as the end. Oh, I have infinite amounts of it. So <laughs> there is no scarcity of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, just like love, of course, right? We we oh. off now. Everyone's off. Uh, it's summertime. We'll probably be back in September. Um, so um, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Roger. Thanks, Yanis. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ken. Enjoy your time with the Italians in, in Rome. Hopefully they won't boo you. Um, and bye-bye. Uh, bye, everyone. Thanks. Ciao, guys. Esta longuita cuando volverá